Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Kate Wilson. And I'm Anna Shaw. In this week's episode, I spoke to Monica Malares, who is the head of product experience at BigPay. She's an expert in neobanks and fintech. And she also posts, she also hosts a podcast called Celebrate You. So a podcast host speaking to another podcast host, which was a little bit different. And it was quite fun as well, because we're both really passionate about financial inclusion and wellness um, and also personal development. Um, and her podcast is focused on uh, money and um and development for women as well, well, as well, but in general for women. Um, and what we spoke about in this episode was building a better bank um, and what it, what it takes to build a good bank. So some really interesting discussion there as she's actually built uh, not just one bank, she's actually built two banks. So two neo banks. one was in the UK and one is in Malaysia. So um, where she works now at Big Pay, that was where she was working to, to build another good bank. Um, and we spoke a little bit about disruption and how banks can actually work to better address customer needs and help customers to build good habits as well. Um, something else we discussed that I thought was really interesting was the idea of, well, we spoke about the psychology of money, but also how money can either be, you know, something that's you're fine with or something that causes you substantial stress and kind of an unintended or an unexpected consequence of the pandemic has kind of been that money is now at the front of everyone's mind. So where in the past, maybe it was people who were stressed about money would be thinking about it more, but now everyone's thinking about money and there's kind of a new group of people who maybe weren't thinking about money before, but they've lost their job. They've been really um, stretched financially because they, you know, they lost income or they realized they didn't actually have enough of a savings buffer. Um, so there was quite interesting to just hear about Monica's experience working in different markets as well. So she's born in Mexico, she's lived in the UK, she's now in Malaysia. So she's seen all kinds of uh, different experiences of people and she's really seen how financial well-being and how, and even I guess solutions to financial wellness and literacy have played out in different contexts. So really, really interesting conversation. I'm quite excited for this one so that just see what everyone thinks of it as well. Yeah, that point about money is a good one, isn't it? The the fact that we've gone through this once in a lifetime, probably once in you know, a couple of lifetimes um, event and the way it's impacted people is very different. Some people have saved a lot of money through the pandemic because they've been locked down and not able to, you know, not having gym memberships, not spending money in public transport, not eating out as much. Um, so you have people who've saved money and then you've had people who've been really uh, negatively financially impacted. And I think we know from things like the GFC uh, that those impacts on people have a really a really long term as well. So I wonder if, uh, or I, I think we will need to be focused on how do you uh, address the needs of different segments in particular over the next few years as people have different um, different longer term impacts from the pandemic. And I know we're seeing the property market in Australia and the UK and in Canada and, and in the US and a lot of other markets as well really going um, going quite crazy as people are pouring more money into mortgages, into property, uh, low rate environment, all of those factors also contributing. And then what do you do to make sure that people who have been negatively impacted by the pandemic do still have those opportunities and, and still get um, the financial products that they need and the ability to grow their wealth and grow their, their financial health as well. So um, obviously really topical. I'm really interested in, in hearing about it as well. Let's jump into the into the interview.
Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the RFI Group Digital Banker podcast. And with me today is Monica Maleras, who is an expert in product, fintech and neobanks, as well as someone who's personally passionate about personal development and leadership. Uh, Monica is head of product experience at Big Pay in Malaysia and also runs a podcast called Celebra- Celebrate You, which we'll speak about at the end. Um, but to start off with, firstly, thanks, Monica, for joining us. Um, could you introduce yourselves, yourself a little bit further and take us through some of your key career milestones? Hello. Yes, of course. Hi, Anna. And thank you for having me here. It's my honor and thank you for a beautiful introduction. Okay, so I am Monica. I'm originally from Mexico, but I lived in different parts of the world. I, de- I moved to the UK to study my master's. I lived there for nine years and then I ended up in Malaysia. So the journey was, I, I've always worked in financial services and roughly six years ago when the whole FinTech movement started, met an entrepreneur, Ricky Knox, and back then he was like, Monica, banking is broken. I want to build a good bank. And I was like, oh, that's kind of exciting. It's a unique opportunity to start a bank from scratch. And at the time I was considering whether I could study an MBA or not. So I decided not to go for the MBA and then instead to learn entrepreneurship on the day-to-day job. So I left the corporate job in the, cor- in the big bank and then I joined Ricky Knox to start a new bank in the UK. And then two years later, I got a call and then same, it was an opportunity. Hey, uh, did you know who's Tony Fernandez? <laughs> he wants to start a new bank. And I was like, okay. <laughs> Uh, and then basically how I see my career, it was, and even my life, I see it in three stages or three milestones. The first one was Mexico. And that's where I got the foundations of who I am, my life, my values, uh, work ethic, and all of that. Then I moved to London and that is where I grew up, where I, you know, I became who I am. I became passionate about personal development as well. I set the foundations of my career and the foundations on how to build the bank from scratch. And I was very fortunate that the founders kind of nurtured me at the time to become the leader that, uh, you know, that they saw. And then the third stage of my life, it's that I call the leadership or the third stage of my career where I moved to Malaysia, not only as part of the team to build the bank, but as part of the leadership team to build a bank from scratch in a country where fintech was basically non-existent. So it's been a fascinating journey. And right now, oh, and right now I'm very happy to tell you uh, that last week, Monday, we closed our Series A round in Big Pay uh, and we raised $100 million, which is like amazing. It's really good. We're all very proud uh, of all that we've done. That's That's definitely exciting. Wow. Good timing for this episode as well. Um, What an exciting announcement. (laughs) Yeah, it's been it's been interesting. It's been fun. Mm. Yeah, wow. And I think the the fact that you haven't just built one bank, but two is um, amazing in itself. And, And what a milestone as well. And I think those those three key milestones of your career and personal life, I think are it's a really nice way to reflect back on it as well. Um, and you mentioned that you, you know, you got the phone call, which was Monica, uh, let's, let's build a good bank. What do you think is, what were the problems with, with banks that were already existing? You know, what was maybe bad about other banks or what was lacking in, I guess, being good for the other banks? Yes. Um, so this is like six years ago in the UK market when Ricky called me and he was like, yeah, 
uh, I want to build a good bank. His rationale was, hey, in the normal banks, we say that the customer comes first. But when it comes to doing the doing and making the tough decisions, most of the times, not always, but most of the times, PNL will come first. So what we want to do is to basically disrupt the model from the inside. And to do that, we need to put properly the customer first. And to do that, we're not going to bring a bunch of bankers to build a new bank. We're going to bring the experts in banking. So that's where he brought me. The experts in design, the experts in marketing, in user research, like all of those elements that did not have banking experience. And then based on that, properly disrupt the way of thinking and the mindset to create something innovative. At the time, the problem was... Um, the user experience was terrible. <laughs> like the support service was terrible and the financial products as well did not necessarily suit the customer. And it was just, they were just like selling machines. So a good example is, I remember when I first got my credit card, um, I was in my early twenties and they gave me 10,000 pounds credit limit. And at that time I was like, whoa, why could they give me this? I don't want it, I don't want it. But then I kept it. My dad was like, it's good to have a credit card. It's good to have the credit. I was like, okay, I will not use it. But then years later, I don't remember what it was, but I ended up using it. And it was not to study a master's <laughs> or to buy a house or buy a car. I just used the credit. And then it took me years to pay off my debt from that credit card. So what I see as a good bank practice is we do not give 10,000 pounds credit line to a early 20s uh, girl who's never had a credit card before. We give her something that she can manage and she can start building her credit. And I think today we're seeing that more and more, like all the credit builder products. But this is like 10 years ago, maybe. So... It, it was disrupting the existing model from the inside and with a different mindset that created a good bank. I love that. I think something that we've noticed in Australia as well, where I think previously there was definitely, you know, you turn 18 and your bank reaches out to you offering you a credit card and you accept it because you know it's good to have a credit card for emergencies. And exactly like you said, and then you buy something with it you buy something that's not a car it's not you know an essential thing for your degree it's actually just maybe it's a pair of shoes or an you know expensive jacket or whatever it might be but it starts you in that habit um yeah so it's it's an interesting one thinking about if you're doing things well what's the first step with credit especially is it making sure that you know someone who's 18 or 20 if you're going to give them credit do you give them a really small amount is it more like an overdraft is it more you know something that's manageable but also giving them the information because if you don't know about credit cards you're not going to learn just by having one that's not going to help exactly exactly and i think that's the point it's like teaching people from a young age how to use credit credit is good yeah and it helps you like move on in life uh, but at the same time, it's more of the, doing it in a responsible manner. Yeah, absolutely. In and then educated manner. Exactly. And then you can help them build good habits as well. So they've got a good relationship with credit uh, rather than, 
you know, down the line, like you mentioned, having debt to pay off from when you're in your 20s. Like that's, how is that? It's just unnecessary stress. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Oh, and that was, a. now that you say unnecessary stress, that was a whole, um, what's the right word? That was the baseline of what the bank was based on. The, uh, not assumption, but we could say the fact that stress related to money is the number one, it falls within the top three causes of stress in people's lives. So one of the pain points that we were trying to solve at the time is, was the stress related because of money issues. Yeah, I think something that we've seen with our data as well is that women are more likely to be stressed about money. And I think women are also less likely to be comfortable with credit. And, you know, there's the whole conversation about risk aversion. Um, but, you know, if you have an early experience of stress with money where you basically get stung by it and you get stung by credit, doesn't really help you later on when you're trying to navigate buying maybe buying a house and you're too nervous about you know doing that and managing that or you just don't know how to get how to get about that how to actually do that and it feels too you know in the too hard basket exactly yeah because you get the anxiety of oh i made that thing wrong the first yeah. time and it was a small amount now imagine with a house it's like whoa that's a big commitment and i don't want to get it wrong and then exactly. we're a little bit more risk averse but at the same time, that helps us do a little bit more research. So it's a, it's a balance. What do you think the best way banks can really educate customers on how to manage credit is? Like, what do you think with, with a good bank that actually, you know, doesn't give unnecessary, un, unnecessarily large credit limits? What do you think banks can really do to make sure customers are able to manage money responsibly and kind of be in control of their money? Yeah. That's a great question. And I think we as an industry, we still need to figure it out. Uh, my personal opinion is that for us to really move the needle when it comes to financial well-being and education, it is about looking at money from different perspectives. So there is the element of my daily habits. And how is it that I am kind of like using my money? Am I overspending or am I saving? And if I don't overspend and then save, am I investing or I'm just holding? So those are kind of my habits. But there is a very large piece about the psychology of money. So it's like, what is it that I believe about money and my relationship with money? And what does money mean in my life? Then there is the element of uh, education. I may, I may have the money to invest or I may have the credit score to get a credit, but I, if I do not know how to invest or where to go to, I will not do it. So like we said, it's like baby steps and education so that I can move forwards. And the other element to look at is um, my life as a whole, connecting money and financial well-being to my life goals. If I want to take a gap year, go and travel then I need to save and then it's like helping people achieve their goals and embed money in their day-to-day -day lives and currently with the, with the pandemic it's more of a not a lot of people are thinking of a gap year <laughs> because a it's not feasible but it's more of a how do I ensure that I have financial security and that looks different to different people based on where they are in the stage in life it's different for 
a single woman like you and I, we don't have kids, we don't have commitments, but at the same time, it's more of a, hey, we want stability for the future. But if you are a mother of two children, you also need to think about children, their education, things like, what if I pass away like at a younger age, like all those things, like putting money in context of people's lives and seeing it in a holistic manner, I think that's how we can move forwards. That's my mental model of the world, <laughs> but it's, it's easier <laughs> said than done. It needs collaboration from many parties to get it done. I love that, putting money in the context of people's lives. I think it's, especially like you mentioned, the psychology of money, you know, where, where did you learn about money? Did you have good role models? Did your parents struggle with money? Did they argue about money? Was it, you know, central to the conflict in your family? Was it really fine? Did you have a safety net? You know, all these little things that we don't even necessarily realize are quite key to why we get stressed about bills or why we spend so freely without realizing why we spend the way we do. It's, you know, it doesn't just come from nowhere. It's this, it's this process and, you know, life stages as well. When you have kids, you're thinking as well about, am I teaching them good habits? Was I taught good habits, you know, and thinking about how do I do this in the, in the right way? But, you know, at least if, if people can be given the information and the tools to, you know, almost just setting them up to succeed, then at least that's kind of a step in the right direction. Exactly. Um, and thinking about your work, so you've built some good banks um, and in your current role at Big Pay, what do you think, what do you love about that role? What, what excites you about your, your role at Big Pay? Yeah. Oh, that's a great question. I think what excites me the most is building. <laughs> it's like the process of creating something from scratch. And not only like me in isolation, but like the process of working with people to create something big. Uh, since like when I first joined Tandem, I remember the chairman, he, he said something along the lines of, yeah, we're going to make the impossible possible. That's what we were setting uh, ourselves up to do. And then when I moved to big pay, um, it, for me, it was like, I'm Mexican. I lived in the UK. I, I was part of building a bank in the UK and then moving to Malaysia, there were like many similarities to Mexico when it comes to uh, both our developing countries. And so the, the how society works and the underbanked in both countries, that segment was very high. So especially when it gets tough at work, knowing that the product that I'm building, A, it's going to be something physical. It's not just a PowerPoint, but it's like, we are building something physical that's going to touch people's lives and then it's going to help them. And then basically when I think that the, the thing that gives me most satisfaction is when you hear uh, feedback from customers. And it's like, ah, oh, yeah, I use big pay all the time. When we used to travel, it was like the best travel card. Or for example, this year we did a program with the government where we dispersed uh, government funds to help the youth. And then one of the feedbacks that we got, I, remember, I don't remember if it was in chat or social media, it was more of a, oh, thank you so much big pay for uh, basically allowing this program to happen because I've always wanted to try Baskin, Baskin and Robbins and I've never had, and now I do. And we're like, oh, it's like the work that we do has some impact 
as little as this or as big as that in people. So I think that's that's what gives me the most satisfaction, the mix of starting something from scratch, working with people, doing something that has impact. Yeah. And those little moments as well where, you know, we often think about money as a cause of stress and conflict and, you know, it's such a such a topic that needs so much work. But those small moments, like you mentioned, where it's actually helping someone try something for the first time or it's helping them unlock a savings goal or, you know, even just work towards a goal, just progress towards something. You know, it's it is little moments that are so powerful and it kind of brings everything back to the individual level where it's not just we've got 10,000 people who need this. It's actually this one customer on that Saturday, they got to try this for the first time and it made their year. You know, that's so exactly. special. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. It's very special. It is, yeah. it is, it feels good. I have like friends that, for example, as expat women in Malaysia, they are not allowed to work. They can only come with a husband. Uh, and as such, they also struggle with opening bank accounts. And many of them, they are like, oh, we love the flexibility that we have with big pay. It, it just like, it properly solves people's problems. And then it's like, it just feels good when they, when, for example, I tell them, oh yeah, we, we got the, the, found the fundraising this week. They're like, oh yes, I love big pay. Good for you. And you're like, oh good. <laughs> it's like people genuinely like the product. Yes. And that's so nice to actually get that feedback, have the recognition and also for friends to be excited about your work. That's that's nice. Yes, it is. It is good. <laughs> um, you mentioned that there are some similarities with Malaysia and Mexico in terms of the proportion of people who are unbanked. And you've mentioned now as well that there are some women who aren't able to work. What do you think, I guess, what what needs to be solved or what can fintech do to help with um with this level of, uh, I guess, with a low proportion of unbanked or with the proportion of unbanked people in those different markets? And what do you think can be done to sort of address some of the financial inclusion barriers um, in these different markets? Yeah, that's a beautiful question. And I think it's a very complex answer. Uh, <laughs> and it's not only fintech, it is the ecosystem. Uh, and then exactly as an ecosystem with a regulator, the banks, the fintechs, like all the banking ecosystem, we can solve that problem. Uh, I, just to put things in context, I did a podcast with the founder of, female founder of a fintech in Nepal. And basically she's addressing exactly the base of the pyramid, women who do not have access to credit. Uh, and she told me, I, I was not aware of this number, but she's, she told me there's 2 billion people without access to financial services currently. I was like, whoa, 2 billion people is a lot of people. And um, I met her through a mentoring program uh, in UNCDF. And when we were working through, I was her mentor, and then we were working on their design, product design challenges. And then when she explained her product, she said, these people, we wanted to do an app, but these people do not have access to internet. They have access to a phone. So what they did is they built an SMS-based interface with blockchain technology in the background. So basically they are meeting the customer where the customer is. We're not trying to push our worldview and our products, but we are properly taking the customer hand by hand. 
So to me, to um, solve the financial inclusion problem, it's going back to education and really understanding customers. We all, exactly, we all say we put at the, the customer at the center of everything we do, but as much as we would love to think lots of what these women are going through, most of the people working in a fintech, they are not that woman. Starting with, they have access to internet and they have access to apps and technology and education. So we need to, of course, as the product development process goes on, we do research and we put ourselves in the, in the shoes of the customer, but we need to make the extra effort to really understand what's going on behind these people's lives so that then we can guide them step by step in the process, starting with education and confidence and giving them the right tools. If we give them the tool only, we have an amazing product for you. They're not going to use it. But if we educate them and then we also help them create the confidence and belief in themselves that they are good with money and that they can break that generational, let's say pattern, either for them or their kids, then we start seeing progress. And hopefully with technology, these will be faster. So 10, 15 years ago, when I was working in a development bank in Mexico, and we were targeting exactly that cohort of the population. Um, back then, people had access to a mobile phone. But then right now, 15 years later, not only they have access to a phone, like infrastructure across the world is much more uh, embedded in society, e.g. internet. And then given the pandemic now, everything has just like accelerated. So hopefully in the coming three to five years, we can see an acceleration of how we include uh, the most vulnerable in the system. And it, it starts with the process of onboarding and education. Yeah, I think it's such a good point that you can't just, you know, in isolation, you can't just provide tools. You know, it doesn't work to give everyone a bank account because what's that bank account supposed to be doing? What what need is that addressing? And Or maybe everyone has phones, but they don't have internet. So you create an amazing app that requires the internet. Doesn't, you know, what's, what's that meant to do? And how is that actually helping people? And it can be difficult, you know, as you mentioned, when the people working in these financial services companies you know, they're not the ones without internet or without phones. So it can be a little hard to actually think, what are we really solving here? But I, I like that idea of, you know, you give them the tools, but also you're giving education and confidence because you can have all the tools and you can even have the education. But if you don't have the confidence to make the decisions or to, you know, teach your kids or, you know, buy a house or, you know, get to the next step, whatever it might be, because you don't feel you're capable of doing it or because you were told that you're not capable of doing it it's kind of this multifaceted uh, problem that needs solving. Uh, but the idea that the belief in, the, in themselves that they're actually good with money, that's so critical. Because if you think I can do this, I can manage my money, I actually am capable of saving a little bit each day, even if it's, you know, it's all relative to the money that's coming in. I think that can be so powerful in helping the generational patterns that you mentioned, because you'd have generations of people who, and families who just haven't really known how to manage money. And it's not going to just fix itself, but beyond tools, I love that idea, just confidence and education and just helping them believe they can actually 
take that next step. Yeah. I'm like, that's, I'm like, that's beautifully worded. <laughs> <laughs> Came straight from you. <laughs> and that, I guess the technology does adapt so quickly as well. It evolves and, you know, it must be exciting in your industry, just seeing how quickly things grow and change and solutions you were seeing 15 years ago. And now, you know, you wouldn't imagine even using something that you're using there. Now it's completely different, um, but I'm sure the fundamentals are still quite key. Yes, the fundamentals continue to be the fundamentals. Mm. And technology is an accelerator, which is amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess you mentioned as well the speed in which things can actually happen. That's probably one of the biggest developments in recent years where, you know, even the, the technology can be developed and refined quite quickly and problem solved and feedback taken on board and everything, you know, tested and, and improved. Within weeks. Yeah. <laughs> like, if you work in the sprint cycle, like you can, within weeks, iterate the product and then talk to customers and then change again and then it can be it could be done it's just mm -hmm. a matter of uh setting clear objectives as companies as fintechs and what is the problem that we're solving for and not everyone the cha the challenge that i see with fintech is when it comes to solving um financial inclusion for the people at the bottom of the pyramid is that most of the fintechs are not targeting the bottom of the pyramid. Some of them are, but the most of them are targeting the, the upper medium class, let's say. So, however, the upper medium class still, it's not financial inclusion that we need, but we need to work on financial well-being. Mm. And that is where, and, and that is huge as well, huge as well, because then that's where all the things about credit savings, retirement, buying a property, health insurance, like all the elements of, of uh, borrowing, saving, investing, and protecting yourself come in place. And many of us don't have that in place. And we just go like day to day, day to day. And then when something happens and we have a financial shock, then that's where it's like, ooh, we feel very vulnerable. It's not that we feel, we are, because yeah. we're not prepared. Yeah, something that we've seen with our research as well, where previously, you know, people were saving for holidays and cars and houses, and now there's still an element of saving for a home, but a lot of it's about saving for that emergency savings buffer, you know, just some kind of buffer where when you're someone who thought your job was secure, and it actually turns out, you know, anyone in hospitality, for example, that seemed a pretty secure industry for most of the last couple of decades, really, and then suddenly all these people losing their jobs and not realizing that they didn't actually have that much saved away because they've never needed to, because they've always had that stable, you know, that secure money coming in. Exactly. Was there anything, I guess, having been across a few different countries, I'm sure you're in touch with lots of people globally. What do you think were some of the lessons from the pandemic um, when thinking about financial wellbeing? You know, we mentioned um, having a, a savings buffer. Was there anything else that you thought was something specific to the pandemic that we really could learn from that? Yes. I think prior to the pandemic, financial well-being was a topic that you talk about in banks and research and universities. And then post-pandemic, it became a reality. It became relevant to customers and it became a point, a pain point. Because then I think we all realized during the pandemic that we are not in the strongest position that we would like to and somehow there's a degree of vulnerability when it comes to money 
So I think as not only as an industry, but I think the market changed, like customers' minds change. And when money used to be a secondary thing to, in the back of their heads, now money has become more of a, a bigger cause of stress. And if you, if you don't have the money, then it's actively a role, a, a, a stressor in your life. And if you do have the money and if you do have the job security, now it's top of your head that it's like, you could lose that job anytime if the pandemic hits again. Not only hospitality, but everyone, like when you close down the countries for weeks and weeks and weeks in a row, everybody gets affected. So I think now everybody is more conscious about savings and gener generating income. I think prior to, to the pandemic, financial well-being was about how I manage my money. And now I think we're going to start seeing a shift that it's like, how do I manage my money? Yes, which is extremely important. And how do I generate additional income so that then I am not in that vulnerable position? We're, I think we'll start seeing a shift uh, in mindset and behaviors from customers as well. I think especially given just the volume of people who are negative effect, negatively affected, it's probably inevitable that there's now going to be that back of mind, okay, if I lose my job, how much money do I need? I know that it didn't work when I only had this much. Um, and there seems to be more education around, um, you know, people saving at least one or two months paycheck as a buffer or having 10% of their income saved or kind of different ways to come up with what that figure could potentially look like. But a lot of it, I suppose, is unfortunately learned from experience. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, to finish up, I think we've spoken about a lot of things, uh, but we haven't yet touched on your podcast. So given we are speaking in a podcast, uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about your podcast? And for our listeners, if they wanted to learn more about you and listen to your podcast, where they should go? Thank you. Of course we can. <laughs> uh, so my podcast is called uh, Celebrate You. And it is basically a podcast on personal development, money, and entrepreneurship for women, mainly. Why? Because those are the things that I'm passionate about. I'm passionate, I've always been passionate about uh, personal development and working on my mindset and my emotions and setting clarity on what is it that I want and doing a lot of in, in, introspection, getting to know myself. Um, so personal development has been key to who I am. So that's why I started the, the, the podcast because I'm just passionate about it. And then as I started doing the podcast, I realized, and I started it during the pandemic. So I realized that uh, my listeners, e.g. my friends, <laughs> they, they, they were, the episodes that they liked the most were the ones related to money. And I was like, oh, that is so interesting. And then they would start asking me all these questions about like investments and crypto. And I would be like, I'm not a crypto expert, <laughs> but uh, I can talk about, you know, like exactly. I like my career is building products, financial industry. So it's like, I have a background. So I, I introduced the element of money because then I realized that now during the pandemic, we were all in a very more vulnerable position and we were all willing to learn about money. And then I think it's money is important versus before money was important, but in the back of our heads. Now it's like mm -hmm. money is important. And then entrepreneurship, I, I enjoy uh, building things from scratch. And I have built, you know, like two banks. Yeah. 
No, of course, not on my own, uh, but in an ecosystem, which is amazing. And I've got like the experience that I would love to, like the mix of the mindset and the practical elements and sharing inspiring journeys, inspiring stories of other guests. Um, so that's the podcast. Those Sounds three- amazing. I definitely enjoy, I think, I mean, I enjoy speaking to people about, you know, speaking to experts in this space as well, hence why I've spoken to you. And I can't thank you enough for joining us today. I think there's been a lot, a lot to learn. Um, I've been writing some notes because there's so many things that I'm thinking about, um, but it's, it's been a lot of fun and I really appreciate your time. So thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you so much. And then just to finish off, you asked me, like, where can people find me? Mm-hmm. They can find me on Spotify. It's yep. Celebrate View and mm-hmm. Anchor. Uh, LinkedIn, Monica Millares. You'll find me. I'm um, probably the only Monica Millares. <laughs> and then on Instagram, I am Moni Millares. Perfect. Well, yes. thanks very much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.